Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. On today's programme, we're reviewing the film Red Rocket. Sean Baker, the writer-director who brought us Tangerine and The Florida Project, is back with another bubblegum-coloured portrait of America's struggling classes. Red Rocket tells the story of Mikey Saber, a washed-up porn star returning with, uh, well, it looks like his tail between his legs, to his hometown of Texas City. Here, he barges back into the house and the lives of his ex-wife Lexi and her mother Lil. After some half-hearted attempts to find employment, he reverts to selling weed and soon falls for the teenage employee of the local donut store. He quickly realises her star potential, not to mention her ready-made porn star moniker. Everybody already knows her as Strawberry. But is it love, lust, or does he see this wannabe Lolita as his meal ticket back into the blue movie big time? Red Rocket's cast is largely made up of first-timers, plucked from obscurity by Baker, who clearly has a talent for spotting untapped potential. The lead, Simon Rex, a one-time porn star himself, is supported by a number of others Baker found during location scouting trips. One, Brittany Rodriguez, had previously been working in the petrochemical refineries which serve as the austere backdrop to the film before playing June, Mikey's drug dealer's enforcer. I'm joined today to discuss whether Red Rocket does indeed blast into orbit by the digital editor at Little White Lies magazine, Hannah Strong, and by Tim Roby, film critic for The Daily Telegraph. Hannah and Tim, welcome to the programme. Lovely to have you here. Hi. Hi. Hello. Welcome, Hannah. First time winner. Um, <laughs> long, long time listener, first time <laughs> caller. Kaboom! That's <laughs> always wanted. I feel like James O'Brien. It's great. Channeling the vibes. <laughs> Talking of channeling the vibes, shall we have a little clip that dip our toes into the fast moving waters of Red Rocket? So, why are you back, Mr. Hollywood? You're Mikey! Welcome back, dude! I'm on top of my game right now on like every single possible level physical stamina, my mind is sharp, I'm taking 5HTP for serotonin in my brain. Yeah. Dude, with my skill and ability, there's no denying what I can do. The universe is on my side, bro. Before long, it'll be like we're still married. We are still married. I'm doing this tonight. You're probably gonna start a fight. What's your name? Everybody calls me Strawberry. You're like an extraterrestrial around here. Don't fuck with me. Okay, that was a little bit of Red Rocket to get us get us into the the sort of extraordinary energy. Tim, I'll come to you first. The first thing I've got written here in my notes is energy exclamation mark. The film and he. Simon Rex is uh, Mikey uh, Mikey Saber, a kind of exhausting, right? But it's a sort of cavalcade of stuff. That's true. Uh, I feel like Sean Baker kind of always announces this with his films. Tangerine had that the same kind of fluorescent popping energy and, yeah. and for the Florida Project with an incredible child performance by Brooklyn Prince. And here, just from the word go, you've got this NSYNC song Bye 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 on the bus as he steps off. And you don't even know what this opening image is. It's an incredibly close-up image on the kind of fabric of this bus seat that he's sitting on, which Sean Baker's just picked because it's got weird colours on it. And yeah. it pulls back and then suddenly he's off the bus and everything kind of goes to hell. And I think the thing that's different about this film from those, and which I, I'm still so here for Sean Bacon, I'm really here for the difference, is that I actually hate Mikey. I hate him profoundly. <laughs> and no matter how much the film maybe or maybe doesn't want me to sort of sneakily sympathise with him, I still hate him. I still think he's irredeemable, and I don't mind. In fact, the more despicable he becomes, the more interested and kind of gripped I am by the storytelling in this film. So whether or not it's entirely intentional that I despise him, 
to the depths of my soul, uh, <laughs> I do. And that is the very difference from the other earlier films where I felt his empathy for the sex worker characters, who are the main yeah. characters and really in those films, made them extremely extremely sympathetic and, and kind of people you, you wanted to champion. I never want to champion Mikey ever. No, you're not. No, you're not. Nope. You're um, not clicking on, on his Pornhub uh, He is the Donald <laughs> Trump. He's, he's the Donald Trump of sex work, basically. So uh, <laughs> it's, yeah. Okay. Hannah, no redeemable features other than his, possibly his inexhaustible energy. Is, is Mikey Sabre inexhaustible? <laughs> <laughs> we see him, yes. Okay. Sorry. Not to put too fine a point on it. Definitely we do see him once he's got off that bus <laughs> Tim mentioned at the beginning of the film, we see him running naked through the sort of back streets of his hometown by this oil refinery. What are his USPs, Hannah? Well, I think that the, the most striking thing, the, the thing that really grabbed me very early on in this film is when Mikey gets off the bus, the first thing he does is go to the house of his not-quite-ex-wife, as we mm-hmm. heard in the clip, and he delivers this incredible monologue where he's explaining how he came to be back in Texas and it it goes on for about two or three minutes and it's just Simon Rex like speaking mile a minute and it ends with him going hey look a dragonfly and like you know staring (laughs) off at this dragonfly and I just thought it was the funniest thing I'd seen this was during Cannes the first time I saw it and you watch a lot of films and it was the funniest thing I'd seen during the festival I was just in hysterics and speaking to Sean Baker later realizing that was all scripted and rehearsed and thinking about the kind of level of memory that it requires to recite that off the cuff and make it feel like it's something he's just come up with on his own it really speaks to Simon's talent and the character is such a balancing act because I think the first half you do kind of get where Mikey's coming from he's down on his luck he's come home there's a big kind of scene where you see him trying to get a job and struggling because no one wants to hire him because he is an ex-porn star, and he's very unashamed of that. He can't help sort of boasting every time he gets re- <laughs> exactly. de- de- declined or rejected, right? It's kind of incredible, yeah. He's basically um, <laughs> explaining to all these people why working in porn has given him, like, a unique skill set, which, <laughs> fair play to the man. And I think you are kind of initially given someone to root for, but then the film really slowly, inch by inch, shows you what a manipulative, arrogant, unpleasant man he is. Yeah. And for Simon Rex to be able to completely carry that without a long history of similar performances is so impressive to me. It's a phenomenal central performance, isn't it? He's always teetering on that knife edge of, apart from for Tim Roby sitting to my <laughs> left, being a sympathetic character. And just when you think he might redeem himself, he sort of drags himself back, especially when he meets Strawberry. You feel like it's true love or true lust at the very least, maybe. And then, of course, he's trying to inculcate her in his plans he wants to cast her. He thinks she can go all the way with his sort of personal sort of recommendation, his his sort of hand on her shoulder. So I suppose that's that's built in. But but Tim, to quote Mikey Saber, I won Best Oral three years in a row. There's no knowing what I could achieve. <laughs> You'd have to have a heart of stone, surely, not to fall in love with this man. I've got his number from the word go. And now if a fridge fell out of the sky in the kind of last half hour of this film and flattened him, I would think, fair enough, to be honest. I think, you know, the, yeah. what he's doing, the angles he's working and the lives he's ruining around him. It's very clear that um, Strawberry is being groomed to become the next Lexi. You know, she's yeah. going to be the next tragic, nearly ex-wife drug addict craigslist prostitute just left dumped on a sofa essentially when he moves on to the next town yeah and it's very much playing that kind of cyclical game where he just kind of leaves 
destruction in his wake, and this is very obvious. I think it's interesting that Sean Baker decided to set the film in 2016, which is when he was shooting The Florida Project, Mm -hmm. and it's, of course, during Donald Trump's imminent election campaign against Hillary Clinton, and where where the knives were coming out, basically. And I feel as though he's done that very, very deliberately, because this guy's brand of individualism is extremely Trumpian, and it's very much like, what can I get out of any given situation that is thrown his way? So that's part of why I despise him. But I don't think that Simon Rex is in any way to sort of to blame for me hating him. I think it's a tremendous performance. Actually. He's done such a good job. You he, loathe him. He, exactly. He's so good. I hate him from minute one, I think, and increasingly so as it goes on. I really love that he's made that choice, though, this time, Sean Baker, because there was maybe a little danger that his, his films could have become a little bit too cuddly. Mm. Uh, and instead, he, they're very much about kind of gutter wildlife, I would say. Uh, <laughs> and this time, it's gutter wildlife at its most kind of brutal, kind of red in tooth and claw. And he's yeah. just going to rip anyone to shreds who stands in his way. And I think that's that's great. I think that's a really good pivot for this filmmaker at this point. For all its kind of very, it's it's hilarious, and for all its light moments, and for all of... Mikey's kind of craziness. There's a kind of weird hum of threat. Maybe it's the this oil refinery burning and billowing smoke in, into the sky um, behind it. There's something sort of uneasy about it. And we do, we hear Trump sort of saying, if I lose this election, it'll be rigged. And we hear, you know, as, as, as Tim says, we hear the kind of white noise of the American electoral system cranking away, a bit like this oil refinery in the background. There's something threatening in the background of this somehow, isn't there? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And the second Susanna Sarno appears as strawberry, you think, oh, no, because you kind of know how this is going to play out. And, and you think she might also be 15. Exactly, yeah. She's right. 17, but a young 17. Yeah, she, yeah. She, uh, yeah I mean, um, it's very uneasy. And I think that the one of the kind of interesting conversations I've had with people about this film is how much you as an audience member think that the film is either condoning or condemning his actions, which is what, again, makes it a very interesting piece of culture to discuss because I personally think that it's not in any way a a condemnment of Mikey Saber's actions but uh, I have met people who are quite outraged by um, the idea that this is even kind of on the screen in front of us but yeah I do think that something Baker is very good at in all of his films is contrasting this very um, pastel-y poppy kind of aesthetic with the idea that something sinister is happening beneath the surface and we see this in the Florida Project where we have this young girl growing up in this bubblegum pink coloured apartment yeah. building with the kindly Willem Dafoe and it all seems very kind of like she's having the time of her life and then slowly but surely we realise things are actually a lot darker and I think you get a similar sense in this film of the longer it carries on with Strawberry you think at first oh this could be you know a kind of Ill, <laughs> ill-advised but ultimately it could be a redemptive arc for Mikey Saber. Yeah. No, 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 not in any way, shape or form. And you start to feel this real like clutch in your chest, like wondering not only how Strawberry is going to kind of make it out, but how the other people in Mikey's life are going to kind of survive him being around again. Because he is the human equivalent of a herd of locusts. Just <laughs> He busts in. He's a he, black hole, isn't he? He, he sucks is. everything he, in. He is. Any goodness, any light, he will just kind of like sh- shred it to pieces, f- farm it for parts. And he does see people in terms of what he can get out of them. And Tim was just saying about the Trumpian kind of influence on the film. I was thinking about, you know, Trump's whole line about like grabbing by the pussy. That is literally Mikey Saber. He does not have any... He, it's like he doesn't see women as human. He sees them as kind of a means for him to be rich or for him to 
Get his end away. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, thank you. I was trying to think of a polite way of saying that. <laughs> yeah, and I think that as a woman watching it is very true to life. And, you know, the way that you kind of grow up, you are taught to almost have a mistrust of men. And if ever there was an advert for mistrusting men, I think Red Rocket is uh, the best of them. It's practically toxic masculinity the movie. I mean, it's men. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. he's grooming this. He's grooming kind of everyone, isn't he? But mm. particularly this girl who, you know, you could very easily take for being a young teenager rather than an older teenager. Absolutely. That's part of, part of the part she's playing is that she's this self-knowing Lolita. Yeah. Or Lolita, I suppose. <laughs> as she, she was fairly self-knowing in the novel. It is this kind of, there is an ambivalence. It's interesting what Hannah was saying about other critics or buddies or whatever kind of feeling a bit scandalised that it's on the screen. I mean, I love the fact that it's got its moral sense is a bit jelly, jellified, mm. right? I mean, it's, it's a sure. kind of, it's quite a beguiling thing. And also, the other characters are not one-dimensional at all. In fact, I think the, the sort of estranged wife character, Lexi, is a very interesting figure because mm. when she's on that doorstep, when he opens the door, her fury is something to behold. The idea that he's Good. dared come back and darken her door ever again. Mm. And yet he does wheedle his way in, back into her life, and you watch her kind of cave, her defences just crumble. So that's the next dimension to her performance, which I think um, Brie yeah, Elwood does brilliant. Changes, isn't it? Like people go through a lot of transformation they in the do, film, but, don't they? but then you're holding out hope for her that she'll finally fight back against him again. So it's like, even though the redemptive arc, if you like, for Mikey is an illusion, illusory thing that you're never mm. going to get, the kind of fight back arc for uh, Lexi is something you're really hoping for. And there's an amazing moment near the end where that song comes back on, bye bye bye, and it's her <laughs> singing it this time. Yeah. And she's basically telling him to puck off out the door and it's just amazing in the end he calls her a homeless suitcase pimp I mean she calls him a homeless suitcase pimp which is pretty good she's not wrong yeah Yeah. I think the two kind of sporting performances we get from Brie Elrond and Brenda the mother-in-law yeah Yeah, she's brilliant who plays Lil who's Lexi's mother Uh, she recently passed away so it's really sad because she's so funny in this film and Mm. there's a really wonderful scene early on where Mikey's sleeping on their couch and she just keeps coming in and like waking him up at six in the morning like totally unrepentant I love her so much she's like what I aspire to be in like 50 years or so I think she's just incredible we're checking to see how that's going (laughs) just please hang on in there an extra 20 years though (laughs) just that kind of energy of like yes he's my son-in-law yes I have no respect for him but I'm going to kind of be very low-key like terrorising him is is, is kind of her approach to it and she like I think she uh, and Lexi's like team up towards the end to kind of get revenge is just it's just masterful it's one of the most cathartic moments in cinema of the year I think yeah it's exquisite and the next door neighbour who Lexi babysat the, the wife babysat this guy Lonnie who's a proper kind of you know, isn't he? He's a problem. He's, he's a one. He's, he's a one. He's a bit of a topper. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's got a few teeth in his head. He's only in his sort of early twenties, I think. He's a sort of he's sort of selling flags as if he's a, a returning war veteran, and he's obviously just bought the a kind of you know the U.S. Army uniform from somewhere online, and he's kind of like so he's a shyster as well. He's kind of spends all his money, his ill-gotten gains on this kind of car that he thinks is pretty pimped up and he and Mikey kind of become a double act principally again because Mikey's a user and he needs to get around he wants to get in and see Strawberry and he's trying to get job interviews and go to the mall and stuff. He's like one of the dumbest characters from a Quentin Tarantino film who you know (laughs) is toast basically the the second you see him you're like uh oh you're really you're just going to be thrown under the bus here mate and that is basically what happens but even even the kind of revenge plot if you like against Mikey which we're hoping pays off with this kind of great 
cathartic. Yeah. Like, Mikey, I'm not going to give away the ending, but the propensity of this man to slither away unscathed <laughs> from any situation and just move on to his next targets and victims is mm. extraordinary. And I think, again, in, in withholding perhaps the satisfaction that we want from his comeuppance, if you like, I think Sean Baker's done something quite clever there because the likes of Mikey do not often get punished. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's really interesting. We were just talking about Lonnie and Lonnie kind of, when he meets Mikey, he knew Mikey when Mikey was a teenager and he kind of has this like, oh yeah, I always really admired you as a teenager. And you're like, oh, this is telling. Yeah. <laughs> what could this possibly foreshadow? And um it, the way that he is kind of punished for his actions compared to the way that Mikey is or is not punished for his actions, I found really interesting. And also, yeah, I think that's maybe one of the reasons people have been so polarised by the film is the fact that you never get that clean-cut satisfaction of he groomed a teenage girl and now he's going to prison, which I think is what we would all like to see happen in the real world. But yeah, as Tim says, it, it doesn't often go that way. And I do think the ambiguity with which Baker treats his characters in his films is what makes him such an interesting filmmaker. There's such empathy afforded to all these characters and I think it's very clear that he is someone who really does his homework when it comes to things like sex work, which oftentimes in pop culture have been misrepresented. And I interviewed him about the film. He was talking about you know, speaking to sex workers and making sure that his script not only was kind of accurate in the big stuff, but the kind of small details was incredibly important to him. And there's one detail which I love, which he was talking <laughs> about, which is there's this speech Mikey's kind of giving about like his ex-co-stars in porn and how one of them, she married a tech bro and now lives in Salt Lake City. And he, he, he speaks about it with such like kind of like, oh, you know, like that's the worst possible thing. She's such a loser. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> and Sean was talking about this and he was saying that Originally, he was going to say that this woman overdosed and incredibly bleak for a start. And um, the consultant on the film said, no, 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 let's change it to she just married and moved out the industry because, A, that's a much better ending for her. But also, I think it really sells the point that Mikey is just like so far removed from reality that when a woman decides to move out the industry, he thinks that is like the worst possible thing you can do. You can't congratulate it. It's not in his, not exactly. in his world to yeah. think that that's a, a good thing. Exactly. He, thinks he's, he thinks he's George Clooney. He thinks he's <laughs> like, you know, the, yeah. the porn awards are basically Oscars and that he's, he's king of the world. That's yeah, the but the incredible yeah. speech about where he's talking about the best oral award and... Yes. Um, <laughs> it's pointed that out up. that maybe the woman should get the award because yes. she's the she's the one doing the work and he, he's just kind of like what like, yeah. how could you even you think understand that? i'm doing this i'm kind of pulling her hair i'm doing all this stuff you know i'm i'm yeah exactly, wow. exactly. Yeah. yeah all the stuff we know what it is <laughs> yeah exactly you mentioned hannah interviewing sean baker about the film we sort of preface the film by sort of saying it's you know he, he does operate in this world of sort of tough on the margins stuff. This is sort of, you know, like the, I guess you'd call it the sort of underclass in Texas City, which is in Texas a kind of pretty much a backwater, isn't it, near Galveston, now down on the Gulf Coast. It's really poor. Some of these people have hearts of gold, some of them less so. Is this sort of true to Sean Baker's form? Is, yep. is there a sort of social consciousness? To totally. It? I mean, I think there's whole corners of America that only really Sean Baker is bothering to go and explore in, in cinema. And certainly not exploring them in a cliched way where it's just an absolute wallow in kind of degradation mm. or whatever. Uh, and not in a kind of slightly cheesy, feel-good, uplifty way, but, but perfectly balanced between light and dark, I suppose, and between the effervescence of his 
Scorsese's style and the real sort of social content of his films. He, I, yeah. I think he, he manages to strike a very credible balance there every single time so far. It's a career to behold, really. I'm, I'm glad that he's being, you know, because this film got into competition in Cannes. Mm. Uh, after, I hear it got a standing ovation. Yeah, it, things, did, it yeah. did really well. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm just feeling he's, he's going from strength to strength, really. I think every single time I'm going to be fascinated to see what he'll do next. Nice when people don't do the same thing again. Yeah. Even if it's in the same sort of, it's got the same, we've, we've all used the word bubble gum or that kind of, it's got kind of, I mean, there's a lot of weed smoked in this film. And, it, you know, there's one actually rather nice tender scene somehow where you feel like he's gotten away with something. He's riding on this little girl's bike that he's had to <laughs> borrow. That's his kind of, that's his Cadillac, you know, for the, for the movie. <laughs> and he's kind of smoking a joint and there's a lovely light in the air. It's kind of early evening and he feels like, and you think he's fallen in love, but of course what he's done is, as we said in the introduction, possibly got his next meal ticket. Exactly. Back yeah. to the big time, which is the when photography, he again, The photography is so good at photography. I loved yeah. it in the Florida Project as well. Yeah. And, um, I think, and I think the real, the, the ideal twist on his previous work, as I kind of mentioned, is that is just putting the devil in the middle of it for for the first time. And was, yeah. let's see how that works out when everything's bouncing off him. Mm. Uh, and that really just does give the whole format a twist for me, which I think is great. Yeah. And Simon Rex, just quickly reading around, we sort of mentioned that he's a sort of sometime porn star. He also became a kind of party rapper. <laughs> At the behest of Adrian Brody, who's his mate, apparently. Did you read yeah, about that? And yeah. I read about that Nomi Fry in the New Yorker wrote a very interesting profile. piece. Yeah, yeah. there have yeah. been some really amazing pieces about him written um, since Cannes. I, I'm still outraged he didn't get Best Actor at Cannes, by the way. I think he should have won that and should be up for an Oscar. But anyway, it's, by the by. Uh, yeah, he's a really fascinating character. Yeah. So he started out in... Um, the 90s as a VJ on MTV yeah. and his career was swiftly ended when it came to light that he'd made one, one, it must be said, one video. It might have been like two clips of him masturbating when he needed money and was kind of down and out and this created a massive scandal. I mean, nowadays it sounds ridiculous because you think you think MTV is kind of like, well, yeah. why would that be a big deal? But <clears throat> the 90s. So he was kind of treated very unfairly and he just kind of kept coming back bless him he was uh, a rapper for a while he went by the name dirt nasty and he teamed up a lot with this guy uh, mickey avalon they have a i, I mean I, it's monocle I, I shouldn't say a great song but it is a great song called <laughs> my dick which is just like a kind of bragging competition about about dicks and then he became i became aware of him when he was in the scary movie franchise playing a very uh kind of again a, a a dim-witted white rapper character mm. who just got into a lot of like physical uh, comedy situations. And I would recommend if anyone is curious about him watching those films, they're not high art, but he you get a sense for him being a very kind of physical performer, someone who isn't afraid to really go there yeah. where other people might not I'm so. slightly worried now that he's so convincing in this part that can I now watch him in anything else without just thinking <laughs> it's Mikey Sabre again he's crept onto another film set and I'm, I'm now I hate <laughs> oh, him again you like, love him I just I'm, I'm worried <laughs> it's true yeah I don't I, you do wonder how he can like branch out now because it is one of those performances that I think for a lot of people, it would be very hard to separate him from the character. Oh, yeah, compared to someone like Katie Jarvis in Fish Tank. Yes. Where, you know, we, I just think she is that character and I can't really imagine what, 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 where no. else that career would lead, you know. We doff our hats yes, we to do. Simon Rex, <laughs> if not to Mikey Sabre. I kind of do slightly. I don't know why. Sorry. That was us on Red Rocket. And now we come to the bit where we're going to ask Hannah first what it made her think of in a couple of minutes. <laughs> 
So, Hannah, what have you chosen? So, I've chosen Secret Honour by Robert Altman, which is... Talk about dark underbellies. Yeah, yeah. So, my, my logic here was that Red Rocket is basically a kind of loose metaphor for the state of the nation, and Secret Honour is a very not even a metaphor, (laughs) straight up is a reflection on the presidency of Richard Nixon. It's adapted actually from a play by Donald Freed and Arnold M. Stone, who I believe wrote the screenplay as well. And it's 90 minutes and it's basically a monologue um, performed by Philip Baker Stone, who is Nixon in his office. He has a glass of whiskey, a loaded gun and some uh, recording equipment. And he just gives this... 90-minute monologue about everything within his presidency, and it's incredible. It is a powerhouse performance, very much like Simon Rex in Red Rocket, but the thing that got me was the idea of doing these awful, awful things and then refusing to take any responsibility and somehow making it absolutely everyone else's fault. And I do think, yeah, there's, there's a kind of political parallel, but also just this really incredible marriage between a performance and a just outstanding script that I really think matches up well here. Beautifully put. And I haven't seen Secret Honour by Robert Altman, so that is tonight's viewing for me and probably for some of our listeners as well. Beautifully put. It's one of his slightly neglected put. 80s films where he just made yeah. lots of theatre adaptations, but it's one of the best ones. It's really great. It sounds amazing. Yeah. It's I very mean, good. Yeah. I highly recommend. I think it's probably also, if there's any theatre directors out there, I think it is time for a revival in light of uh, current political situations. Yeah, indeed, exactly. <laughs> that was Hannah on Robert Altman's Secret Honour. Tim, what candle did this light in your head? We've gone in similar directions. I've, I said I've, candle, it's I've obviously gone... a very bright light bulb. It's a bright, Sorry, it's a bright light, yeah. Um, <laughs> bright, dazzling. Yeah. Like, yeah. I've gone for a star-making performance from 1970, which was really the first major lead performance by Jack Nicholson in that era, Five Easy Pieces, a film by Bob Rafelson, in which he plays... Similarly to Mikey Saber, a misogynistic asshole who comes back to his hometown because his dad is dying and creates an absolute mess again for all the women in his orbit. And there are some extraordinary, as in Red Rocket, um, supporting performances by all the actresses in this film. His sister, Lois Smith, is such an endearingly sad character. His on-off girlfriend, who thinks she's more of a girlfriend than she is, Karen Black, is, again, brilliantly drawn as someone who he basically can't stand but also can't get rid of, keeps trying to get rid of. And then he begins a dalliance with his uh, with his essentially brother's girlfriend or sister-in-law while he's involved in this all this family stuff. And he's just sneaky and sarcastic in that classic Jack Nicholson way, out for himself. He's also running away from success in this film. He's, he's grown up in a middle-class household, uh, has been taught piano in his childhood, but isn't interested in any of that, just wants to cut all ties and has become an oil rig worker and just wants complete independence. He's running away, essentially. So he's a bit different from Mikey in that respect because he's not got that kind of individualistic sort yeah. of like um, make me make me wealthy uh, streak in him at all. He actually he's just got wants... this kind of like this sort of mega narcissism. He's got mega narcissism and, and just a deeply ingrained misogyny, which is quite hard to watch in this film. But I watched it again last night and I think it stands up so brilliantly because it's also extremely funny. Mm. There's a sequence involving two hitchhikers in the middle of it, which is just br- some of the best writing of that era. It's uh, written by a quite neglected a screenwriter actually in Hollywood called Carol Eastman, uh, mm-hmm. who whose career slightly faded away after she got an Oscar nomination for this. But the the real power of Five Easy Pieces for me comes at the end. There's an extraordinary final shot in which he makes a terrible and cruel decision. But even before that, there's a scene with his dad in the garden where he kind of breaks down. And unlike Mikey, 
I really feel sympathy floods in for the, for the man in this scene. Even though he's done so many terrible things in this film, that scene moves me a lot. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that is sort of sort of it says a lot about Jack Nicholson's talent in that era that he was able to draw such a despicable person but actually manage sympathy at that one point. Yeah. Uh, and then from then his his career blossomed and everything else followed. One flew over the cuckoo's nest and Chinatown yeah. and everything else. The rest is rich exactly, rich yeah. history. Um Jack Nicholson of course obviously I guess also similarly as, as Simon Rex in this sort of just has that kind of magnetism that twinkle in his eye. I mean, and he's the devil. Of, he's yeah, always the devil. Insatiable sort and, of attractiveness yeah, but sort of And yeah. never not a misogynist. Try and name me one one Jack Nicholson character who is not an atrocious misogynist, and you will struggle. Uh, the like Joker? The, no, 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 very, very much, very so. much so. <laughs> yeah. When, okay. I like that we've chosen three films which also have incredible like final shots as well. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Secret Honor's got a really depressing, but rightly so, ending, and the ending of Red Rocket again very divisive. I and mean, we won't spoil it for the no, listeners. No, indeed, we mustn't. But, but um, yeah. yeah, it's definitely uh, a good trio there for good endings. We yeah, that is your viewing. We started off with Red Rocket, which we'd heartily <laughs> recommend. And then Hannah told us about Robert Altman's Secret Honour. And then Tim told us about Jack Nicholson in Five Easy Pieces. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Hannah Strong and Tim Roby. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph chung And Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bound, thanks for tuning in. 